And if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be reading uh, verses 25 through 37 tonight. But first, I'm going to have Tim come up, and he's going to read our passage for us. Okay, our scripture reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, let's go to Lord in prayer. Fathers, we open up your word. Uh, We pray that you would uh, use it to draw our hearts. Um, God, as we have already asked into worship of you, God, that you would use this to convict us of our own sin, uh, that you would use it to open our eyes to your graciousness and glory. God, that every uh, part of this uh, passage um, God, the words that I speak on it, God, and the things that I leave out, um, that that uh, you would use those to stir our hearts. Um, God, we know that that we can come to to your word and that uh, we can read it, uh, we can hear it taught. Um, God, it can go in one ear and out the other. It can fall on on rocky soil and um, not only not bring forth uh, uh, life, but not take root, not bear fruit. Father, we ask that that um, your word um, would not, um, God would not lie fallow, uh, that it would, that it would um, accomplish your purposes, uh, that it would bring you glory and, and bring us good. Uh, we thank you for this. Um, God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for um, the beauty of, of the changing seasons. Um, God, we thank you for, for this uh, Palm Sunday uh, as, we, as we prepare our hearts to remember this week um, that we call Holy Week. God, the, the coming of your son to Jerusalem 
and his, his march to the cross uh, and to the tomb, God, and to your side. God, we thank you for your uh, the grace that we are shown uh, in the life and work of Christ. Uh, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, uh, so um, you might have noticed on the front that, that this sermon is titled uh, The Spaghetti Parable. Uh, and, and that was me trying to be cute. So, so I'm a Western fan. I um, love Western movies. And uh, recently, I've kind of been um, um, revisiting some of those Western movies. Uh, and so, like, over the last couple of weeks, I, I started rewatching uh, Lonesome Dove, which if you've never seen Lonesome Dove, man, it's great. Um, just an awesome miniseries from the 80s, a Western miniseries. Uh, the, the movie Unforgiven, um, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, all, all favorites of mine. And so I've been, I've been kind of revisiting all these old Westerns that I like. And there's a trope in Westerns. Uh, that you find oftentimes, so much so that that trope has sort of fallen into popular uh, colloquial kind of slang. And that is the idea of this character called the black hat. All right. And so you see in classic uh, American Westerns, both on TV back in like the 50s and 60s and in, in film, that there's this trope that you always know who the bad guy is in the story because he comes in wearing a black hat. And oftentimes, the good guy is also wearing a white hat or at least a lighter colored hat or something like that to, to designate him. But certainly, the, the villain is wearing a black hat. Now, what happened, though, is in the 1960s, there was a sort of movement in Westerns uh, where the style changed a little bit. And this, this, this uh, new style of Westerns came to prominence prominence that were called spaghetti westerns. So probably some of y'all are familiar with that concept. And the reason they were called spaghetti westerns is because they were filmed not in the American Southwest, uh, where you would expect uh, a western to take place, but they were filmed in the kind of arid, dusty, rocky areas of Italy, because Italy can kind of look like the Southwest in certain times. And so they became known as the spaghetti westerns. But the deal was is that, that they were called uh, spaghetti westerns, but one of the things that made them so popular was the fact that they subverted this trope of the black hat, white hat characters, all right? And so what would happen in these new spaghetti westerns is that the good guys were oftentimes not so good. And oftentimes the bad guys were the charismatic characters. They had a, they had a sort of panache and an attitude that actually made you root for them and not for the character that was actually the good guy. And so I kind of mentioned this obligatory pop culture reference, right? Cause I haven't, I couldn't figure out a Lord of the Rings reference to put in here, but, um, it's, that's That idea is exactly what we see in this passage, okay? We see this subversion of the, of the ideas of who the normal hero would be and who the normal villain would be. We've repeatedly talked about the fact that Luke's gospel emphasizes how Jesus kind of defies expectations. Um, he defies convention. He sort of turns all these things on their head. And in this parable, incidentally, this is, this is one of Jesus' most well-known parables, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's also one of the parables that is only found in the Gospel of Luke. And so we've talked about the fact that Luke is sort of the, he has more parables than anybody else and a lot of certain parables that nobody else has. But in this parable, Jesus tells this story that the Jewish hearers would have immediately anticipated who the black hat was, 
and who the white hats were, who the heroes were and who the villains were. But Jesus uses this story, this reversal in the story, to illustrate this, this key point of who our neighbor is and how we are supposed to love those neighbors. All right? So let's kind of start with looking at the setup of the story. We're told in verse 25 that, behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. So an expert in the law comes and he puts Jesus to the test. Now, sometimes when we hear that phrase, when we hear about a Pharisee or a scribe putting Jesus to the test, uh, we, we tend to think that it's, it's them trying to trap Jesus in some way, right? They are putting, um, the, the Pharisees are trying to stump him. They're trying to give him a question that he can't answer or one that if he answers in the way they think that he's going to, he'll end up getting him in trouble or something like that. But I don't think that's the case with this lawyer. I don't think this lawyer is trying to trap Jesus. He's legitimately trying to test to see if Jesus is legit. He's, he's trying to see if Jesus is going to say and teach things that are in accordance with the word of God. He wants to see if Jesus is orthodox. And so, um, interestingly though, when this Pharisee or this uh, lawyer asks this question of Jesus, he asked this question, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, Jesus throws the question back in the lawyer's court. He says, well, well, how do you read the Bible? What does it say? What, what do you think it says is the answer to that question? And so the lawyer immediately references what we have come to call from, from our reading the New Testament, what we call the great commandment. And that is this combination sort of of it's, it's a mixture of the passage that we know as the Shema um, in, in Deuteronomy 6, and then a passage about loving your neighbor in Leviticus chapter 9. But that basically the idea is saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And the second one is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All right? That is the great commandment. And Jesus affirms that answer. He says, you're right. In fact, he even uses this language where he says, do this and you will live. All right. Now, now we probably need to stop for just a second and confront that a little bit because it might seem like Jesus is saying something that borders on a, a works based kind of righteousness or something like that. Right. Like Jesus is saying, if you'll do this thing, then you will be saved. And we, and we know from the rest of scripture that that can't be exactly what he's saying that we are not saved by our actions, our right belief in any kind of way. We're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. We are any mixture of all kinds of wrong behaviors and, and wrong actions and wrong understandings, but it is trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior and turning from our sin by which we are saved. We're saved by faith. And so people have a different attitude about this passage. Some commentators think Jesus is basically saying, yes, he's not denying salvation by faith, but he is saying that, the, the kind of relationship that we see in salvation, that heart change that we see in salvation is, 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 um, uh, demonstrated in loving God above everything else and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so that may be what the way Jesus is talking about it. It may also be the case that Jesus is giving sort of a law gospel distinction. Okay. And he is saying essentially, yes, if you do that, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you actually did that, you would live. The problem is, is to implicitly say, but you don't. Nobody does that. Nobody loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nobody loves their neighbor as their self. And we sort of notice 
that that is the problem with this whole situation almost immediately. Because when Jesus says, do this and you will live, we're told two things about this guy. What does it say in verse 28? Immediately it says, but wanting to justify himself. All right? Immediately we're in a situation where he's going, okay, how can I steer this situation to where I fall into the category of somebody who is doing this? And then he asked the question, who is my neighbor? So we notice two things. This guy has an issue. He wants to justify himself, which we said a couple times in the last few weeks, right? That is the default position of the human heart. We are not looking to be justified by Jesus, even though that's the only way we can be justified. We are always in the default position of trying to justify ourselves. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me for whatever reason which is all wrong. We always have to fall back on Christ. But this man says, I want to justify myself. And the specific issue is, who is my neighbor? What are we talking about here? Who do I have to love and serve to fall into the category of someone who has loved my neighbor rightly? See, if I can narrow down who my neighbor is, then all of a sudden, this righteous life suddenly becomes a little more attainable, right? So, so consider this idea as we step into this. This is the loophole of every religion in the world. Okay? Because here's the deal. Every religion basically says something like, love your neighbor. Do right by people. Okay? Everybody does. But the loophole in every faith system is, but who is my neighbor? So if in is the in Islamic teaching, right? They, there is there is kindness, there's charity to the poor, but if that person is an enemy of Islam, well then all of a sudden I'm justified to do all kinds of things, lie to them, oppress them, even kill them. In Hinduism, Hinduism has values of of similar values of, of compassion. That is, unless you are one of the deletes, you are one of the untouchable class, and then you can be robbed and raped and your property can be seized and you can be killed and there are no repercussions if it is somebody from a higher caste than you. Um, you think about in, in the American, um, in American history, right? When we had chattel slavery, uh, in this country, how was that perpetrated? Well, it was perpetrated by basically saying these people are only three fifths of a person. Right. You have to find some way to say they're not really who it's talking about in this passage. They're either less than human or there's a specific something about them that makes it to where they're not really my neighbor. I'll tell you what, I would argue that in the immigration debate that we continue to have in this country and the, and the, and the crazy stuff that's going on at the border right now and has been for a while, we use the language of criminality to try to degrade people as humans. Somewhat to say, well, cool, if, if I say this person is a criminal, then all of a sudden they don't deserve certain kinds of, of normal human rights. If I can say they are an illegal, then I don't owe them anything. Right? We find all kinds of little ways to do these things. And that's not to say that there aren't actual repercussions for, for criminal action and stuff like that. We're not saying that. But we are saying there are these different ways that what we do is, is we say, who is my neighbor? How can I demote people to where they are either not my neighbor or maybe not even human anymore? All these attempts are there to distance ourselves from the responsibility that we have for our neighbors. 
So Jesus then tells this parable to illustrate the point. So he starts in verse 30 and he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he encountered robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. All right, if you know anything about sort of uh, uh, the geography of, of Israel and its history, that road going down the mountain from Jerusalem to Jericho, it sits in the valley at the top of the Dead Sea, is notoriously dangerous, right? There are, there, it's, it's craggy, there are caves, there are blind corners, it's narrow in places, there's great places for ambushes. It was a dangerous road to travel, and this man experiences that. Um, he falls under attack, he is robbed, beaten, and, and left for dead. And about this time in the story, these three characters appear. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now, the priest and the Levite, if you're a Jewish person reading this story in Jesus' time, are like white hats, right? The priest and the Levites are the good guys in this story. God's chosen mediator and God's chosen servant. If anyone's going to follow the commandment to love your neighbor, it's going to be these two guys, right? And then the other person, the third person, is a hated Samaritan. So again, if you're, if you're kind of familiar with, with the, the history of the nation of Israel, the Samaritans were basically half-breeds in the Jewish eyes. They were descendants of the northern tribes who had been conquered, excuse me, had been conquered and then assimilated into the, the pagan, uh, uh, peoples of, of the Middle East assimilated, at least synthesized. Some of them still kind of worship God in some ways, but they certainly had compromised with the pagan world and given up much of their Jewish faith and ancestry. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. They were typically enemies in these situations, certainly taboo outsiders. But the Samaritan is the one who rescues the man. The Samaritan is the one who gets this man to safety. And so again, it says in verse 31, by coincidence, a priest was going down that on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. So the Samaritan, again, is at best an outsider. At worst, an enemy. He is the designated black hat in this passage. The character that any Jewish person would assume is the bad guy. But what we see is that he's the one who actually shows us what it actually looks like to be a neighbor and to love someone as a neighbor. And I think what we find in this passage is this. When we kind of look at the situation, the reasons he seems to care, the reason the priest and the Levite don't, what we see is Jesus teaching us something, and we have tension between two points, okay? And I'm going to kind of talk about each one of those points and the, and the tension that they bring to the issue of who is our neighbor and how do they love them? How do we love them? And those two issues that are in tension with each other are proximity and need. Proximity and need. So first off, we have this idea of loving our neighbor is about proximity despite or irrespective of differences from that person. So why does the Samaritan help this man? Well, it tells us 
because he sees him, because he's there, and he has compassion on him. The Samaritan is walking, and he sees this guy bleeding to death, naked in the ditch, and he's close to him. He sees him, and he feels compassion. He's not some guy suffering on the other side of the world. He's not a hypothetical in the man's mind, but he's right there in front of him. And the Samaritan, despite all of the things that would normally separate him from another Jewish person, sees this Jewish victim, he sees his plight, and because he is close to him, he has compassion on him. And I mean literally close to him, in proximity to him. Notice the language that it says about the priest and the Levite. What do both of them do? When they see the guy laying in the ditch, it says they pass by on the other side. Right? They see the guy laying there, and they try to get as far away from it as they possibly can. Well, why do they do that? Well, they do it for the same reason that we, when we see a street, uh, a beggar on a street corner, that we try not to make eye contact with him. We do it for the same reason when we, when we watch the news or, or something and we see a starving child in some war-torn country that we change the channel. Because we want distance. Because distance feels like my responsibility is lessened. But at least for the priest and the Levite, it's a self-deception, right? That is not what the case is. It is a self-justification because they are not distanced. They just refuse to look. The man isn't distant. He's right there on the other side of the road, bleeding out, dying in front of them. And they can avert their eyes, and they do, but that doesn't change the situation. He's still there. Because here's part of the deal that I think Jesus is pointing us to in this passage. You know, we spiritualize the concept of a neighbor. But the reality is, is a neighbor is just somebody who is close to you. It's just somebody who is near you at the time, who lives next to you, who lives among you, who lives in your community, or is even just there in your community. And sometimes, in a different kind of attempt to distance ourselves from people, we try to make kinship the main signifier of, of a neighbor. We try to make affinity the main determiner of a neighbor. Those are the things that qualify you to be my neighbor. So what do we do? We say, people who are like me are my real neighbors. And like me means whatever I'm currently interested in manipulating the situation for. They're the same race as me. They're the same religion as me. They're the same socioeconomic class as me. They're the same political party as me. They're the same football team fans as me. They keep their yard nice the way I keep mine, if I kept my yard nice. Um, they, it's, it's whatever it is that they are similar to me, and that's what makes them my neighbor. But here's the deal. Someone being your neighbor has way more to do with just how physically close they are to you. It has much less to do with those real or perceived differences between you and that person. And so what I'm saying is this, is that from the angle of proximity, and again, this is only part of the story. There's going to be two pieces in tension here. But from the angle of proximity, I bear more responsibility to my literal neighbor next door than I do to my figurative neighbor on the other side of the world. Does that make sense? that I bear more responsibility to the guy who is hurting next to me than the hypothetical guy who is hurting in Alcoa, 
in Nashville, in California, in China. Right? Does that make sense? All right. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at here is that neighborliness and someone being your neighbor is about them being there. It's about you sharing that space with each other. But that's only half the story because we can immediately start feeling the tension and also feeling the ways that sin might manipulate that idea. So let me give you an extreme example. Let's say you're presented with the opportunity to, to uh, give money to feed and educate a kid in India. And sometimes we might fall into a trap in our own head where we would say something like, well, certainly my own children are in closer proximity to me. And therefore, because they're closer to me, I'm going, I have more of a responsibility to them than I do to that child over there. My well-fed, well-clothed, well-sheltered, entertained, pampered, provided for kids are closer to me in proximity. Therefore, I should focus my energies here and not out there. All right. So what I would argue with you is, is you are letting the tension of proximity just in the tug of war, pull you onto the proximity side. That's not what we're supposed to do because there's a tension here. The other tension to proximity is need. The other balancing force to proximity is the severity, the emergency of the situation of the other person. So here's the thing. So we, we, ha- we all have him- limited resources, right? Everybody has limited resources. And need never ends. We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago as we were talking through uh, the people coming to Jesus and stuff, right? There is always somebody to help. There is always somebody that needs something. Jesus tells us that the poor you will always have with you. So just in case you have these sort of utopian ideas that if we could just get our government and education and, and charity figured out, we could end poverty, I'm telling you that the Son of God says it's never going to happen. The poor are always going to be with you because of the factors of the world. Right? There's always more need in the world. And we have to ask ourselves, do you think that priest didn't have people who needed things that were closer to him in certain ways. Do you think there was anybody back home in that priest's town that was in poverty and, and hurt and danger or, or, or whatever, right? It would have been easy for that priest to say, man, I, I, I know I've got some resources that I can use to help this guy, but man, there's people back home who are certainly more my neighbors than this guy is. I'm, I'm more, I live my life in proximity to those people on a regular basis more that certainly deserve it more than this guy does um, or who need it more than this guy does. I'm going I'm to let proximity determine these things on this situation. But the difference is this. The, the key factor is the severity of the situation here. This man is in dire need. Without immediate help, he will likely not survive. And admittedly, that help is going to be costly. It's going to be costly to be a neighbor to this guy. And again, the priests and the Levites have a lot to lose. Not only the considerable sacrifice that that is the expense of helping this man, but they have an added piece, probably. They're headed to Jerusalem, likely. 
unofficial kind of temple and, 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 and religious business, interacting with a man who is bleeding, interacting with human blood. If he's already dead, interacting with a dead body is going to make them ceremonially defiled. They're going to get to Jerusalem and not be able to do the things that they're supposed to do. And so there is a significant cost to these guys helping this man. But the Samaritan helps. Not only despite his lack of affinity with this man, but also despite the cost because the need is so critical. So verse 34, and uh, he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. There's significant cost involved there. But again, the critical nature of this man's need, the severity, the emergency of it is the motivating factor. And so what I would say is the other tension to this thing is this. Sometimes urgency trumps proximity when it comes to being a neighbor, when it comes to loving people as neighbors. So let me give you, again, kind of an extreme example. Um, let's say we're sending uh, uh, money to purchase Bibles in a foreign country. And someone here in America might say something like, well, people need Bibles here too, right? Why are we sending our money and our Bibles over to some foreign country? Shouldn't we care about our own people first, their neighbors, the people who are in proximity to us, before we start trying to help people on the other side of the world? But again, the issue is the severity of their need. Are those Bibles going to a country where they don't have any Bibles? In America, you can buy a Bible at any bookstore you go to. You can literally buy them at the grocery store. I was surprised by that the other day. I was walking through Kroger and I looked over and it was like greeting cards and Bibles. And I was like, when did the grocery store start selling Bibles? You can get a Bible at the grocery store in the United States. There's a church on every corner in the South. You can go to any of them, I guarantee you, and they will give you a Bible. I don't even have to know what kind of church it is. Any church in this county, if you go and say, I don't have a Bible, will you please give me one? They'll get you a Bible. But those Bibles that we're sending to the other side of the world may be going to communities that have never seen one before, where there is no gospel church, no gospel witness. People couldn't afford a Bible even if there was an opportunity to buy one, even if they were available. And so then what do we say? We say, is it untrue that the people in America need Bible too? No, it is. They do need Bibles in America. And if we were to give those people in, in America a Bible, that would be okay. We wouldn't be sinning by that. In fact, we would be acting in a neighborly way to those people. But in a world of limited resources, maybe on that day we say, you know what? The urgency of the need in that other country trumps the proximity of the need of these people who are around me. We see this all the time, right? When a natural disaster hits, when the tsunami hit Japan whenever it was 10 years ago, when the earthquake hit Haiti a few years ago, when 9-11 happened and everybody started lining up to give blood, Okay. All of a sudden, in a moment, the whole world says the need is so great in this one location that all other interests have to take a back seat for a minute. I got all kinds of proximate needs, all kinds of proximate ways I could be a neighbor to somebody, but the great emergency need right here trumps everything else, and I got to focus on that. 
All right. And as those issues get back to normal, then we can start saying, cool. And I'm going to, I'm going to again, focus on the proximate needs. It happens like that all the time. And so Jesus is, I think he's, and there's all kinds of stuff going on in this passage. Let me be straight up with you. I could have preached this passage half a dozen different ways. There's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of different things that we can talk about. If you go listen to six sermons on this passage online tomorrow, you're probably going to hear six different sermons about them. But but some of these issues to me, especially, man, with the things going on in our country um, and, and, and we continue to deal with, just seemed like they were particularly applicable. Jesus says, which of these three dudes do you think, he doesn't say dudes, That was that's the message. Um, uh, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to him, the one who showed compassion on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So Jesus confronts the way we try to weasel out of loving people and treating people like they're our neighbors. Because that's what's going on in the passage. I shouldn't have to help that person. Because that person is different from me. They're not really my neighbor. They're a foreigner or a redneck or a drug addict, or a liberal, right? I don't have to care about that person. They're not like me, and I don't have to show them neighborly care and love. Jesus says, is he close to you? Is he proximate? Does he live in your neighborhood? Do you see him at work? Then he's your neighbor. you got to love him. Then from the other side, we say, I shouldn't have to help that person because it's too expensive. The cost is too high. I don't want to have to bear that burden. And there are other people closer to me that I should give that money to anyway. The high cost and critical need don't reduce our responsibility. In fact, they increase our responsibility. You were more responsible to give blood at 9-11 than you are tomorrow. And I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's an inaccurate thing to say. Now, here's the deal, though. Getting back to sort of that place where the man says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, man, do these things and you will live. The problem is we're lousy at these things. It is significant that Jesus says, do this and you will inherit life because we don't do those things. We love God poorly and we demonstrate that loving God poorly by loving people poorly. I appreciate the, the, the Lutheran tradition and, and my friends who are Lutherans because that's one of the emphases that I feel like the Lutheran church is always, is always there for. They're like, you want to see what love looks like? It's how you love people. Well, aren't I supposed to love God first? You love God by loving your neighbor. All right. You see your love for God played out by how you love your neighbor. If you say you love God over here, but you don't love your neighbor, you're lying to yourself. But the reality is, is if you love your neighbor well, you're probably loving God well also. We love poorly and we demonstrate that all the time. And as is always the case, the ethical principles that Jesus lays down for us, he lives out perfectly. Jesus exemplifies this passage. Jesus came near for you. When you were a foreigner, when you were an outsider, when you were a Samaritan or as a Samaritan, a Jew, when you were a rebel, when you were an enemy, and even though the distance between you and him was literally the distance between heaven and earth, 
He left the glories at the right hand of his father. He stepped down into your mess. He took on this stuff that we have to deal with and watch fall apart over the course of our lives. He took on that stuff. He associated with you. Jesus didn't pass by on the other side. When he saw your plight, he didn't try to avert his eyes and look the other way. He came to your side to bear your burden, your pain, your grief, your sin. Why? Again, because the situation you were in was so dire. You laid beaten and bloody in a ditch of sin and judgment, and there was no help coming and no hope for you. Left to yourself, you had only death and hell waiting for you. But Jesus, not just at great cost to him, but at ultimate cost to him. Not just sacrificing two denarius plus expenses, but sacrificing his blood and his flesh and his life. Jesus loves you as a, as a neighbor. And so, man, I think the case is when we think about Palm Sunday, is Palm Sunday not a perfect picture of a Jesus who is stepping into our plight, knowing full well what is coming, knowing that Jerusalem is full of his enemies, knowing that all those cries of Hosanna in the highest are superficial, and that in five days' time will disappear, knowing that the week is going to cost him everything. And yet, for the joy set before him, Jesus loves anyway. Jesus treats you as a neighbor. Jesus um, steps into your situation, picks you up out of the ditch, mends your wounds, cares for you, brings you to a place of safety, provides for your well-being so that you can continue to live. He counts the cost and rescues us. That's, that's the gospel, right? That's the reality of who we have in Jesus Christ. It's, it's Again, I feel like, man, it was providential probably that this passage, I feel like it's a great passage for Palm Sunday. Maybe not the one that you would typically go to on a Palm Sunday, but it fits it pretty well. Because we see Jesus loving us as we would hope that we would be loved. So what I want to do is just kind of, again, go to the Lord in prayer for a few moments. And think about these things in our own heart. Because the reality is, is, is we are that lawyer. You're that lawyer, I'm that lawyer. At the end of every day, when we have not done what we are supposed to have done, we look for ways to justify ourselves. We look for ways to explain to God why I'm not responsible. That person's not my neighbor. It's not my fault. I shouldn't be held accountable for that. And the reality is we're always wrong. A lot of times people come to this passage about the Good Samaritan and the, the principle that comes out of it at the very end is everybody's your neighbor. And you know what? That's not wrong. Everybody is your neighbor. I think there's more to it than that. Um, I think he's he's fine-tuning it more than that, but that's not wrong. Everyone is our neighbor. And we're called to love um, as, as best we can uh, in each of those situations. So I want us to go to the Lord in prayer um, and ask us, 
ask him to show us uh, where we fall short here. Ask God to show you which side of this thing you are jumping to. Are you trying to um, deny the cost? Or are you trying to deny the responsibility? And then in all this, looking to Jesus Christ saying, because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done for me, should that not change the way that I see other people? See the people who are around me every day who are different than me. See the people who are less fortunate and who are going through crisis. Should we not see them in a different way every single day? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and 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 ask him to, to open our eyes and open our hearts to these things. Father, what a beautiful picture you have shown us of the love of your son, Jesus, in, God, the story of the Good Samaritan, in, in the, the events of, of Holy Week as you enter the city of Jerusalem, God, knowing that the week will end in rejection and crucifixion and death. Father, you have loved us and loved us through your son, Jesus, in a way that we could not hope for, could not have anticipated, certainly do not deserve. God, we thank you for your great mercy and grace, your great provision, healing, care, safety that you have shown us by your life, death, and resurrection. God, help us to extend that love to the people who are close to us, God, to the people who are in great need. God, and as much as we are, are able and capable, God, to, to anyone and everyone that we encounter as we go through life. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. Good to see everybody, man. We had a good, we had a good crowd tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like, man, we are almost at the end of this thing. Uh, you know, we're not quite there, but we are just about at the point where um, we are all back together and and uh, are comfortable being here and stuff. And so I'm excited to see that. Um, it couldn't happen at a better time than at Easter, and so uh, I'm glad for that. Um, remember, Sunday 9 a.m. here, uh, inside, outside, we'll see. Um, but, but we will be here at 9 a.m. this Sunday. There will be no services Sunday night. All right. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.